Hello folks, welcome to Radio Free SD, the goddamn number one left-wing podcast in South Dakota. Don't you forget it. It's me, as always, John. I'm coming to you guys. Uh, we're in our, our bunker deep beneath the Corn Palace. I'm very uh, excited to share this episode with you guys. Um, we had the honor of being able to speak with Norman Finkelstein, um, and for those of you who don't know, Mr. Finkelstein is probably you know, one of the most respected political scientists, um, specifically on the topic of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Uh, he's written multiple books on the topic, um, including his most recent book uh, called I Accuse, which came out in 2019, where he writes about how the ICC, the International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, covered up and refused to investigate the Israeli war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, going on in the occupied territories, namely uh, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. Uh, he's also written numerous other books, including Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom, and This Time We Went Too Far, Truth and Consequences of the Gaza Invasion, um, as well as The Holocaust Industry. Uh, he's written a ton of books on this topic. Uh, it's, it, I'm really excited that we were able to speak to him. Um, you know, I could definitely speak for Matt and myself uh, in, in saying that we were really honored to be able to t speak with him. He's been writing and speaking on this topic for many years. Um, and he suffered professional consequences uh, for stating the truth about the illegal and immoral occupation of Palestine by the Israeli state. Um, he hasn't been a tenured professor for over 10 years now. Uh, basically, he's been blackballed um, by, you know, certain powerful people uh, in, the, in that area. Um, and, you know, we mostly just listened to him, uh, and he gave some good context around the discussion of uh, Israel and Palestine, so we, we didn't really get into the weeds, uh, but it was still very informative and interesting, um, and he's a very funny guy, very nice to talk to. Um, and also, just a note, uh, while we were recording, we didn't realize that you actually have to pay for more than 40 minutes of rec recording time on Zoom uh, when there's more than two people, so we got kicked out of the call, like, basically in the middle of our conversation, but... It kind of ended on a perfect spot, and uh, Norm was kind enough to offer to do a second interview with us. So watch out for part two, which will probably be out soon as well. Um, and, um, you know, before I get into it, just a reminder, uh, follow us at Twitter, at RFSDPod. Um, and if you like what we do and you want to give us some money, um, we've activated our listener support on anchor.fm so if you want to give us 99 cents a month five bucks a month you want to give me ten thousand dollars you know hey do it we would appreciate it and you know the more money we get um we can you know make better content get better equipment um and you know just just focus on putting out a, a better product um and so uh, with that in mind, let's uh, let's get into this interview with uh, Mr. Finkelstein. I don't respect that anymore. I really don't. I don't like and I don't respect the crocodile tears to, con to the crocodile tears. No, uh, I'm so, folks. Um, allow me to finish and allow me to allow me to finish. Listen, sir, 
Allow me to finish. Allow me to finish. Uh, sir, sir, I don't like to play. I don't like to play before an audience the Holocaust card. But since now I feel now I feel compelled to. My late father was in Auschwitz. My late mother, please shut up. My late father was in Auschwitz. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family, on my father's side, on my father's side, the Jews did not take arms against the My children. late father was in Auschwitz concentration camp. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family on both sides was exterminated. Both of my parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And it's precisely and exactly because of the lessons my parents taught me and my two siblings that I will not be silent when Israel commits its crimes against the Palestinians. And I consider nothing more despicable than to use their suffering and their martyrdom to try to justify the torture, the brutalization, the dem demolition of homes that Israel daily commits against the Palestinians. So I refuse any longer to be intimidated or browbeaten by the tears. If you had any heart in you, you would be crying for the Palestinians. Not for what talking here. Don't you know <laughs> Oh. No. No. <laughs> you know, my grandmother's Never mind, go ahead, John. I'm sorry. You, you joke, but uh there are like totally uh there's anti-semites for sure. There's like a cell of neo-Nazis about 10 miles away from my my town. I, There's like four of them, and they're complete losers, but um, it's that definitely... Was, that was an anti... That, that was Nazi-phobia. <laughs> Nazi-phobia? Yeah, you're right. Oh. I, 
there's some good people and I should probably listen to both sides on that argument. Mm, it's definitely a balanced thing that you should be considering. I I don't know. I, that's something I find interesting and I would love to discuss. Um, I think a lot of people, um, I, there's a tendency, I think, to dismiss like flyover states as not being capable of being resistant to far right or right wing ideas. But I think a lot of it, honestly, is just a lack of exposure and an understanding. Uh, and just like people are not cognizant of these um, these problems. And I think, it, especially in the Midwest, if you're a Christian or some other, like, like if it's Protestant, Catholic, it doesn't really matter. For a lot, like from birth to death, um, a lot of people are just taught that if you want to be not anti-Semitic, you have to be pro-Israel. And there's not really much thought put into it beyond that. And I think culturally, um, especially I live in a bigger city, which for our standards, we're talking here, uh, than John. I live in the largest city in South Dakota, which is Sioux Falls. And there's a more eclectic bit of diversity. Um, I have uh, some Jewish friends who are sort of in tune with that and aware of things like that. But if you talk to pretty much anybody who doesn't have any familiarity with uh, the Levant and the history of that in the 20th century, those are like, well, you have to just give money to the Israeli government. Like there's constantly commercials on TV about how do your part, help them out. And um, there's not much thought put into it beyond that. And there's also the, um, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I apologize. Um, I'm listening, I'm listening. All right, I, there's also, I think, it's just, I was raised like Baptist um, and a very, like, I would like to clarify like a, um, in a, in an evangelistic kind of context, John was raised Catholic, but the, like the evangelistic thing, they really stress just this insane eschatology, just like this looking forward to the apocalypse. And that's kind of this, just like, like that's, neck and neck we're in favor of whatever we can do to put the jewish people in their homeland so we can trigger the apocalypse and it's this very insane uh death cult almost um that does that completely disregards uh how that will affect the region uh, in a political sense and uh, in a material sense and is purely uh it's like cave drawings you know just well, you've just, you've just convinced me of one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not flying over South Dakota. I'm flying <laughs> around it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I, it's already dangerous. Mm -hmm. And if it comes to pass that I fly anywhere in the vicinity of South Dakota, I'm wearing my mask. Of course, yes. absolutely. Yes. No, you'd you'd be smart to do that everywhere. They don't. Uh, yeah, we're not. We're, we're all gonna die from COVID in South Dakota, probably. <laughs> we globally were uh, in Sioux Falls at our um, our uh, meat packing plant, the Smithfield. We were the hotspot of the world for a good half of an, a month. We were like like ballooning cases multiple people died and our governor 
said and did basically nothing in response to this. It's just like, ah, oh, it's probably not good that these laborers are just keeling over. Um, we have a, yeah, there's a very significant portion of the population that doesn't believe in COVID, that is uh, in opposition to protests about uh, racial right. equality. Um, did, is this coming through, by the way? I just want to clarify, because I just heard some glitching uh, through the mic. I'm wondering, are you a representative of the tourism industry? No, I, we're just familiar <laughs> with where we live po politically, because we're insane. We're out of our minds. Because I was going to tell you the things you're telling me are not going to encourage tourism. So, well, well, Black Hills are we very want, beautiful. The main purpose, like, I don't want tourism. I want people to help out our indigenous population. And... Wait, wait, wait. I have to get some water because it's like 200 degrees. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, I got to pause. So what happened? That's okay. Uh, it's like 200 degrees outside. 200 degrees? Oh, my goodness. I, it's getting pretty toasty out here, too, I must say. Uh, I am. I hate yeah. the summer. Uh, you can only take off oh so many clothes. You can't take off your skin. But with cold, you can put on more layers. That's feasible. That's doable. <laughs> yeah, I've been kind of missing the winter, honestly. Well, <laughs> that's it's a it's a matter of preference. I think I just I'm more used to the cold. We don't have a spring here, like in terms of climate. Another yeah, great thing It's really tourism. cold and then it's really hot. Yeah, like I had, uh, no. friend, I had a good friend who lives in Fargo. Mm. He was probably the richest man in South Dakota. Did he live in South Dakota before he lived in North Dakota? Oh wait, Fargo is in North Dakota. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. I'm not well, angry with wow, you. Wow, I can't blame you. South North Dakota. <laughs> I'm offended. Well, I mean. It doesn't matter when people like pronounce our state capital and they pronounce it Pierre. It's like, oh yeah, okay. You have heard of South Dakota and you know at the very least that it has a capital. That's good, uh, but it's pronounced Pierre. That's a, another stupid thing. But uh, yeah, you know, the main reason. Uh, we're... Oh, oh, go ahead. Um, well, I was just gonna say, you know, when you were on the phone with me yesterday and you made the joke about. Um, people in South Dakota already made the sacrifice. I could just laugh because honestly, half of what people our age in South Dakota do is complain about wanting to leave South Dakota. So it's like, I can't even get offended because we talk shit about South Dakota every single day of our lives. Well, it's our home. We but. love it, but it's also an incredibly unpleasant place. The main reason we care about it um, and are familiar with it to this extent is because we have a pretty considerable indigenous population the, and I think a large population that is uh, maybe left-leaning to some degree or at least is entertaining uh, political thought to some capacity whether it's in like oh I'm gonna start philosophizing about this or it's like I want to be a political scientist um, and not just be like I don't know um, going mean, you know we joke around, but there, I mean, there are good people here. It's Absolutely. Just, you know, I think you know, like nobody's the, organized or mm. has any type yeah, of. Listen, I know there are good people there. There are good people in the Nazi party. Mm. That's a joke. 
Yeah, I, I, I comprend. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. I. Yeah. <laughs> well, um. um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to start recording, Matt? And I'll. Well, do I've, my I've, I've just been recording, just whatever snippets. I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. We can, we can go. Well, I can cut it later. But uh, well, let me let me ask just to begin with: What are you like completely uninterested in discussing? What do you think has no value? Um, because Justin, you will just proceed and see where it goes. Okay. All right. Let's go. in a time limit of max 40 minutes. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Cool. Because otherwise uh, it's gonna melt here. It's just unbearable. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you not have like a fan or something? No, I'm old fashioned. I like to do it the way Abraham Lincoln did it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, we're here with uh, Norman Finkelstein um, and uh, we're gonna talk about we got we're going to talk about israel palestine um and for anybody who's listening who doesn't know um uh, mr finkelstein is um a phd i don't know whether you want to be or no you said call you norm but uh graduated from princeton and he's uh one of the you know most well-known scholars on the israeli-palestine conflict um you know, we do, you know, I said it before, but, you know, I do appreciate you taking the time to come speak with us. Um, and, you know, I guess the first thing that, you know, I wanted to ask you about is kind of, for a lot of people, they don't even, you know, they know Israel is doing something bad. And they know, they also think that, you know, the Palestinians are also, you know, they're kind of both sides of the issue. Um, and it's something you talk about a lot in your work. Um, and one of the things that I think is important to talk about is the, the, the way that, you know, in a lot of media, it, people will say, um, you know, the Israeli government, what they're doing is bad, but, you know, also Hamas needs to control themselves. Um, and I think, you know, especially with, you know, could you talk about that and kind of why it's presenting a false argument, false dic uh, dictomy of, you know, these two fo forces that are both doing bad things when in reality, uh, it, at least it, it appears to me that, uh, you know, Hamas has shown incredible restraint and, you know, the people of Palestine have shown incredible restraint, um, especially uh, you know, with the, the march of uh, the right to return, um, people were, are, you know, not armed, literally being peaceful. Um, and, you know, would you agree with that uh, characterization that, you know, the Palestinians and Hamas and whatever organizations that are there are, are being peaceful and, you know, aren't really um, actually doing anything to justify the types of bombings and killings that go on in Gaza and the, uh, the occupied territories? Well, the problem when I'm speaking to an anonymous audience, that is to say, <clears throat> I'm not familiar with people in South Dakota in general, or with your audience in particular, 
the the question obviously arises of where to begin and trying to situate isolated events within a broader context because in the absence of the broader context the isolated events don't really make all that much sense <clears throat> so let me try to put it in the context which I think is valid, legitimate, but also speaks to uh, your audience. And I just have this very vague notion of what your audience is. So uh, when I was growing up, not as old as you guys are now, but let's say when I'm in grade school, ages 10, 11, 12, maybe a little younger also, eight and nine, uh, I like to watch cowboy and Indian movies. Mm -hmm. And as we called them back then, they were called cowboy and Indian shows, television shows, movies. And I used to like to watch them a lot. And I obviously always rooted for the cowboys because the way it was depicted in the programs in the 1950s, uh, the way it was depicted were, here were these heroic settlers trying to conquer the wilderness, living simple, austere lives, striving for uh, personal independence and individualism, and then Somewhere amidst these, the wilderness, kind of the equivalent of the fauna, you know, the technical Latin term fauna and flora, the animal life and the plant life. Well, the fauna is the animal life, sort of like part of the animal life in the wilderness were these, what were called savages, the Indians. And they would periodically invade, attack, scalp these heroic, courageous settlers who were trying to conquer the wilderness and carve out a space for civilization. And these savages, almost the equivalent of the animal life in the wilderness, were holding back the advance of civilization and were targeting the exponents and the ex exemplars of civilization. And that's all a very fancy philosophical way of saying, I would watch these TV shows and movies and I would reach the climactic moment, kill the Indians, kill the Indians, kill the savages, kill the savages. And I really got caught up in it. I remember I was really excited by the prospect of killing those savages who were trying to prevent the, civil, uh, the wilderness from being tamed and civilization from advancing. Uh, obviously, you guys are way too young to remember, but 
In the 1960s, our country, the United States, it underwent a real cultural revolution. Uh, values which had been deeply entrenched in our country were radically overturned. And among those values was the one which saw the native population to the extent that it existed in our imagination, uh, envisaged the native population as deserving of its fate, namely their displacement uh, uh, and extermination, but it wasn't seen as extermination. It was seen as fighting back against these intruders on civilization. Um, it wasn't until in the United States, there was a movie uh, starring this actor named Dustin Hoffman. Mm. It was called The Little Big Men. And was actually the very first film in the United States, the very first film in the United States that attempted to depict what happened here through the eyes of the Native Americans. Whether it was an accurate depiction or not, I frankly can't remember. And you can go back and watch the movie and decide for yourselves. But it was the very first time our country in the 1960s underwent a genuine cultural revolution. Whether it was the question of women's rights, gay rights, Native American rights, all sorts of things. Our country just radically changed. Mm -hmm. You guys couldn't even conceive that up until high school, up until I was uh, about 15 years old, a girl was not allowed to wear pants to school. And I'm talking about New York City. I'm not talking about the backwards. A girl was not allowed to wear pants to school. And when one very frigid winter, a girl came to school in pants, she was expelled. And that began a new revolution among kids. Yeah. The rights of girls to wear pants to school in the winter when it was very cold. Yeah. In any event, uh, back to where we were, I don't think it's very much different with the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, when we were growing up, one of the movies, kids, boys, boys, this is a, it was a boys thing. We all watched was Remember the Alamo. It was done by Disney. And we all, of course, rooted for the Alamo because there was Lieutenant Travers, I think his name was, Rip Travers. There was Jim Bowie. There was Davy Crockett, and then there was the evil, evil, evil Santa Ana. Santa Ana was the Mexican general who was attacking the Alamo. And Santa Ana was like Hamas. He, he was for my generation of boys. He was the incarnation of evil because he destroyed the Alamo, you know, remember the Alamo. You must. It took me a long time to figure out 
that Sonia Anna was actually defending Mexico against <laughs> Jim Bowie, David Crockett, and Lieutenant Rip Master were stealing Texas. So, a lot of how you perceive the conflict depends on where you start from. From the power, if you start from, it began when these essentially foreign invaders come to Palestine. They say, God gave this land to us 3,000 years ago, and therefore it's ours. And the native population says, hey, wait a minute. I don't know what happened 3,000 years ago, but we've been living here for about 3,000 years. So I'm not sure you have rights to this land. And any rational person would, on reflection, say, hey, Okay, I've been living in this apartment where I'm speaking to you from for 25 years. If somebody knocked on my door and said, excuse me, is this 2245 Ocean Parkway apartment 6G? Said yes. And they said, well, according to my Bible right here, <laughs> my family occupied that apartment 3,000 years ago so if you don't mind, I'm repossessing it, and you'll just have to find somewhere else to live. You know, yeah. go to the Jewish community in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'd I say, don't think I need to. I'd say you're nuts. No. You know, you need severe psychiatric intervention. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the same from the point of view of the Palestinians. I don't like to use expressions from the point of view of Palestinians because it makes it seem as if this is all a matter of perspectives. Mm -hmm. But it's not a matter of perspectives. It's a matter of applying a basic principle across the board and asking yourself a simple question. Can you imagine in any other situation, any people in any place on the planet who would accept those terms that they have to vacate, so to speak, their premises because another people claims it had a right to that territory based on some biblical disposition three millennia ago. Doesn't it doesn't sound credible. It doesn't sound like a plausible claim to that territory. Yeah. And um, of course, from the Jewish, from the point of view of those Jews who went there, they had two arguments on their side. Argument number one was. Every people has a right to a territory. And if uh, French have a right to a territory, and if British have a right to a territory, uh, why shouldn't Jews have a right to a territory? So that was the first 
claim of theirs. And the second claim of theirs was that we as a people have historically suffered uh, considerable persecution and therefore we need a safe haven whenever these, whenever these periodic outbursts of what was called anti-Semitism occur, we need a safe haven, a state which will provide us refuge. I would say personally, the first argument has not, I would say not much validity to it because there are thousands of peoples scattered across the planet who have some sort of ethnic identity but are not granted the right to statehood. If we were to grant every group of people with every claim to ethnic identity the right to a state, our planet would not consist of 196 nation states. It would consist of probably 196,000 nation states. So that argument I don't find very compelling. The second argument about the need for a place of refuge, I would say that has an element of compellingness about it. it. It can compel, it can convince. The problem is where, where do the Palestinians have the moral obligation among all the peoples on earth? Do they have the special moral obligation to for Forfeit, forfeit their territory so that Jews can have a refuge from persecution? Why is it that Palestinians must bear that moral burden, even if you accept the argument that Jews deserve a place of refuge? I have to be, you know, as I said, every principle has a moral force to it if it works across the board. Mm -hmm. So let's take something comparable to the example of the Israel and the Palestinians. As you know, New York has a very large homeless population. And it's increasing visibly. You walk the streets now, there are more homeless than ever. You're on the subways, because homeless people seek the subways for refuge, warmth in the winter and air conditioning in the summer. You're on the subways, many more homeless people, okay? Now, I live in a one-bedroom apartment. And even in my one-bedroom apartment, I have a 
sofa that opens up to a bed. I can accommodate one of those homeless people. That's just a fact. There's no getting around that physical fact. If I were then told that I was morally obligated to take in a homeless person, I would probably, I would probably accept that moral obligation if everyone else were morally obligated. So, first of all, I consider myself the rare person, the very rare person who would accept that moral responsibility. But recall, even I put a condition on it. I said, if everybody else has to do it, I'll do it. Now, in the case of the Palestinians, they were being asked to do things which I would never accept. First of all, they were being asked not to give space to Jews. They were, in effect, being asked to leave and find another place to live and give their place to Palestinians. I'm not asked to leave my apartment. Number two, there, um, nobody else is being asked that. The whole burden is being put on them in order to give Jews a refuge. Americans weren't obliged to give Jews a refuge. Canadians weren't obliged to give Jews a refuge, only Palestinians. So now I said to you a moment ago, I'll accept that obligation if everybody else accepts that obligation. But if everybody else is not duty bound to accept that obligation, I'm not accepting it. So I consider that I have a, a strong moral core, but even I come up against limits. Limit number one is I'll share my apartment. I'm not giving up my apartment. Limit number two, I'll give up space for a homeless person if everybody else has to. In the case of the Palestinians, nobody else was asked to. They were asked to make the sacrifice. And that to me is unacceptable. So I can see some of what was called back then uh, the Zionist, the idea of creating a Jewish state in Palestine, that's mm -hmm. Zionism, the idea of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. I could see some of the arguments, but I, I'm not convinced by them. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I know I wouldn't give up my apartment if somebody knocked on my door and said I lived there 3,000 years ago. So why should I expect the Palestinians to do it? And I know that if a homeless person, and that's what the Jews claimed. They said they were a homeless people. That was their claim. We were a homeless people, and we want to create, as the expression was, a Jewish national home in Palestine. That's what the Balfour Declaration, which was when the British came out in support of the Jewish claim to Palestine, it was to create a Jewish national home in Palestine. So they were homeless. 
So I tried to use the closest example. There are homeless people all over my city. And how much am I willing to grant for that? Now, I don't want this to be an interview. I don't want it to be an interview, but I'm going to tell you, I did take in a homeless person for two and a half years. I did. Because I tried to be principled about these things. It's gotten out of control in our city, the homelessness. It was very tough. It was very tough. I've done the same thing uh, with a friend. It wasn't so, someone I know, but it can, yes, it can be very difficult to, to take care of someone like that or help them out, even though it's the right thing to do. Yeah, so um, with that in mind, I think the picture is pretty clear. The Palestinians face the same situation as the Native Americans in this country, when settlers started to come over, uh, they faced pretty much the same situation. And when you add in the special arguments made by the Zionist movement, the movement of wanted to create a Jewish not home or state in Palestine, when you add in their special arguments, the arguments about every other people has a right to a state, why can't we? And we need a we need a refuge uh, because of our experiences with these outbursts of anti-Semitism. I can see the arguments, but I can't see the burdens that were put on the Palestinians. Now, to bring the picture up to the present, and that will get to where you are, the question you asked me. I'm going to skip an awful lot of history and just bring it up to the present. The present is the area of Palestine on a map has as its borders the Mediterranean Ocean on one side, the Jordan River on the other. In that area of Palestine, what was called Palestine, about um, 80% of it is now occupied by the state of Israel. And then there's about 20%, which is called the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, which Palestinians have said, okay, we've lost 80%. We'll accept our homeland on the 20% that's left. The West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. The West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. We'll accept our homeland there. We're not going to fight any longer over the 80%. Israel is a state. It's entrenched. It's not going anywhere. There's, it's pointless to keep fighting that old battle. It can't be won. But we want our dignity at least in that minimum, this tiny percentage that remains, the 22%, 22 technically, of Palestine, which comprises the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And Israel won't give them the 22%. That, that, that's, the, uh, that's the essence of where we stand now. Israel wants the whole thing except 
jumping onto areas against our concentration. Because it doesn't 